0: Wanted to um, tackle that, he was welcome to do that. And so he chose uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, 8, somewhere right in there. So I'm leapfrogging those today. I'm going to be in ch- verses 13 and 14, but we look forward to Kenny sharing with us next Sunday. Also, you noted in your bulletin that there was these little green slips of paper. This is for uh, the ministry. Some of y'all remember ministry in Ukraine. Uh, finding hope. And so they have a a mission site here in the U.S. that helps raise money and sends it forward to the folks in in Romania. Um, I said in Ukraine, in Romania. So they're taking lots of folks from the Ukraine. I think last number I heard was up to like 75 or 80 people living in their house um, in Romania, uh, refugees and children. So uh, we really want to to do what we can to support them, and we'll send some more information about uh, this stuff out to you by email, as well as an, a video update that we just received from the family in Romania um, later this week. Um, again, our text comes from Matthew chapter uh, 2, verses 13 and 14, and I just going to go ahead and give you a word of warning. We're going to be doing some math today. I don't know if anybody got my email this week, earlier this week. Um, I sent you a math problem, a little algebra problem there for you to work out. And so we're going to get to that a little bit later, but just kind of put your thinking caps on today for those of you that just love math. Right? I know we got at least one who love math. Uh, This will be a great sermon for you. So let's stand together and read from God's Word. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Here we go. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh— God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You may be seated. All right, there's lots of little parts and pieces going on in those verses. And so I want to kind of break this thing down and break it apart so we can make sure we um, appreciate all that Paul is saying here. Uh, Let's begin in verse 13. Um, before uh, the Colossians come to Christ, Paul's referring here at the front end of verse 13 to their life before they were saved. That is their pre-salvation state. And he describes them this way. He says that they were dead. I got a slide for you here. It shows the word dead in the middle of it. Um, and then it gives these descriptors off to the side. And the descriptors are that they were in the, dead in their trespasses and that they were dead in their uncircumcision of their flesh. Those two phrases are modifiers. They, they speak to or describe a person who's in this dead state. So I'm going to start with the word dead. And then we'll work out to those two descriptive phrases. So the word dead, when we talk about dead, Paul is not referring to the Colossians as being physically dead. We know that the Colossians are alive, so he has more of a metaphorical meaning here. What is he talking to when he talks about them being dead? Well, what does death do? Death separates you and I from those that have gone on before us. So the land of the dead do not interact with the land of the living. It's just the same land of the living can't interact with or go visit with the land of the dead. So when Paul describes the Colossians as dead, he's describing people who are separated from God. That's his intended meaning when he uses the word dead here. He's talking about somebody who is separated from God. Two factors that point to this separation. Uh, Number one is that they are dead in their trespasses, that is, in their sins. I've always liked how John Wesley defined sin. He defined it as a willful transgression of a known law of God. That means that you knew something was wrong, but you did it anyway. So that's how Wesley kind of defines or quantifies sin, and that's sin. And so, so Paul says, If anyone who has done this, that they are dead in their trespasses, that is, they are separated from God. The second descriptor that Paul gives of someone in this dead state is this phrase, the uncircumcision of the flesh. What does Paul mean by uncircumcision? Well, circumcision was a surgery that was performed on Jewish males when they were just a few days old. Very few people groups in the world did this to their populations, broadly, across the board, during Bible times, but the Jews did. And because of this, the Jews were unique amongst the peoples of the world. They had something different about them. They had a sign, if you will, on their physical bodies, a scar on their physical bodies, that would identify them as God's God's person. So God could look down and say, hey, look, this is one of my children. This is one of my people. And so the uncircumcision of the flesh points to the fact that these Colossians, before they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, were separated or were alienated from God. They, were, they didn't have the mark. They were not part of the family of God. That's what Paul is pointing out here when he talks about the uncircumcision of the flesh. Now back up in verse 11, because of Jesus, Paul says, they were circumcised with a circumcision made without human hands. There was no surgery involved. So now that the Lord Jesus has come along, now he's entered into their life, these Colossian Christians have now been circumcised with a circumcision that was not made by human hands. And so it's a spiritual circumcision. God has accomplished this by sending his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person who dwells inside of you. First, or I don't have this on the Scripture, but Colossians chapter 6 and verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? A temple is where God dwells. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of the believers, so the Holy Spirit is that scar, that that sign upon the physical body. Now that we as believers have that identifies us as God's own. Now it's important for us to stop right here and note that circumcision was only a sign. It was a sign of this relationship of the covenant. Circumcision did not save anyone. Just because a Jew was circumcised did not automatically qualify them for heaven. Faith in God is what qualified them, what made them uh, God's people. Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not through circumcision, saved through faith, He writes over in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3 that Abraham believed, that is, Abraham had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice he doesn't say that because Abraham was circumcised, God counted that to him as righteousness. It was his faith in God that allowed this relationship to be inaugurated. Being circumcised did not save the Jewish people any more than putting money in a church offering plate will save you. Amen? So the uncircumcision of the flesh is a way of saying that these Colossians, before they came to faith in Jesus Christ, that they were not part of the people of God. That's what Paul is pointing out here. So two phrases describing the one word, the word dead. Dead in their trespasses, dead in the uncircumcision of their flesh. All of this indicating a separation that existed between the Colossians and God in their pre-salvation state. Paul then contrasts the Colossians who were dead in formerly dead, with their new present status. At the end of verse 13, uh, here's a slide, got a slide for you here, uh, of verse 13. Paul says, they are made alive with Christ, who has forgiven us all of our trespasses. So whether a Jew or a Gentile, we all have the same problem. And the problem is that we need to have our sins forgiven. You'll notice that Paul, here in verse 13, begins a transition and uses the word us. He's saying, hey, look, this is a Jewish problem and a Gentile problem. We all need forgiveness. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And so this is a universal—and so he says, hey, look, Jesus is the universal cure that God has forgiven us all of our trespasses. This statement and the statements that follow, again, point to both Jew and Gentile alike. Look at verse 14 with me. By the way, I'm going to show you here in just a little bit. I'm going to give you an illustration. I know this is all a technical jargon working through all these phrases, tying their, all this stuff together, and trying to make sure we get, get our heads wrapped around. I'm going to give you an illustration in a little bit that's probably going to confuse you anymore, or confuse you more, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, verse 14, here is how the cross of Christ made possible this forgiveness that we all need. Paul writes, verse 14, on the cross, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So here's our slide about ma- being made alive. God is a holy God, and because of that, God cannot just allow us as unholy people who have sin stained on our hearts to come into His presence. I mean, if we were to walk into God's presence and we got in the presence of His holiness, I mean, we would just be evaporated, right? He would flick us off out of heaven like you'd flick a flea off a a dog's back. I mean, He would just send us flying. Um, And also, God is a just God, so God can't just dismiss our sins outright and say, hey, look, I'm just going to forgive you on no basis at all. So a sacrifice has to be made for those sins. And so In order for God's holiness and for his justice to be satisfied, one of two things has to happen. Either you and I are to be condemned and sent to hell forever for eternity, separated from God permanently forever, or someone else who is perfect, who has never sinned, who is flawless, can give their life as a substitute for the just penalty that is due to you and I. I was talking to my daughter about this this past week that Jesus Christ went to the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. That's what Paul's pointing to. And Jesus is the person that lived a sinless life, therefore making him the perfect sacrifice. And with his death on the cross, we were cleansed. God's holiness was satisfied. And with his death on the cross, our sin debt was paid in full. And so God's justice was satisfied. Paul then concludes the whole matter with these words at the end of verse 14. He says, This I set aside, our sin debt, nailing it to the cross. Or this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You may recall that when Jesus died on the cross, they put this uh, sign above his head. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, we know from the, from the biblical text what was written on that sign. That sign said, King of the Jews, and I think it was written in multiple languages. Well, that really upset Jesus' accusers. They were not too thrilled about seeing over Jesus' um, cross this sign that said he was the King of the Jews and antagonized them. And so I always thought that was kind of odd. Why would Pilate— want to antagonize these people that he was ruling over? What was—what did he have a— was he upset because they'd gotten him up early in the morning and they had made him come out to to his terrace there and overlook the crowds, and then he had to interact with them, that they had a little ruckus going on early in the morning? Was he upset with them? Did he want to just kind of jab them back if he could— Um, Well, remember, Pilate is responsible for keeping the peace in the Judean province. And he's got people that he has to answer to. And this territory was known, historically, for being a very difficult, unruly group of people. And so Pilate, by instigating them, potentially could create some sort of rebellion. And this is on the day of Passover. This is the most holy day of the year for the Jewish people. I mean, we could really see a riot taking place here. So again, I just thought it was kind of odd. Why would he want to do that? Why would he want to stick this sign up there that would cause friction? Well, there's a really simple answer. You see, above every criminal who was crucified on a cross, the Romans posted their crimes, or the, the crime or crimes that they were accused of. They posted why that person was being crucified on the cross. Pilate said of Jesus, I find no fault in him. I, 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 don't, I cannot find one thing that this guy has ever done wrong, much less to be able, worthy of sending him to the cross. And so he turns to the people in John chapter 19 and verse 14, and he says to them, as Jesus is standing there next to Barabbas, he says, behold your king. And the people respond back in verse 15. Shall, or he says, shall I crucify your king? And of course, the people respond back, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate posted above Jesus the only rationale he could think of as to why Jesus was on that cross that he claimed to be king of the Jews. Now, um, I had uh, shared with you um, over, I guess it was Friday for those of you that picked up the email, and I, it was in the announcement slides. I don't know if anybody worked out the math real quick, but um, I share with you this math problem. So I'm going to bring this in front of you now, um, and this is all hypothetical, okay? I know some of you are like, golly, that pastor sins a lot, but let's just, this is a hypothetical, anecdotal uh, little, little thing here to try and illustrate what's going on. I was having trouble sleeping earlier this week. I had gotten a hold of a, a caffeinated coffee, that's like the worst thing in the world for me. At like 6.30 in the morning, I stopped in the script didn't have any decaf. I mean, come on, folks. And so uh, I ended up picking up a caffeinated coffee. I didn't stumble into it. I, I knew what I was drinking. But anyway, I had a really productive day that day. It was terrific. Uh, but about 3 o'clock in the morning, later that night, I was still—anyhow, so this is what I came up with. This is what you get at 3 o'clock in the morning, right? Um, here's, the, here's the hypothetical math problem. All right, let's say that Pastor Gordon lives to the ripe old age of 100. And let's also say that in the second half of his life, he draws closer and closer with the Lord and sins only one-fourth as much as he had in the first half of his life. If Pastor Gordon sins on average 24 times a day in the first half of his life, how many sins might he commit all total over the course of his life? Now, I want to walk you through the solution to this little math problem that I came up with. Um, we'll see how y'all did. I don't know if anybody tried to work it out ahead of time. We'll see if your answer matches up with mine, and then we'll go to the tutor to get, uh, make sure we're all right. All right, 50 years— if we take 50 years, so here's our first slide. If we take 50 years times 365.25 days, okay, we have got a leap year, okay, that's good. And we, we come up with 18,262.5 days in the first 50 years. Take that 18,262.5 days, next slide, and you multiply it by the 24 average sins per day in the first half of Pastor Gordon's life, and you end up with a total of 438,300 sins in the first 50 years of Gordon's life. Wow. All right. If you uh, take—next slide. If you take the 24 average sins, remember in the second half of his life, he draws closer with the Lord. He only sins on average one-fourth as much as he did in the first half. And so we multiply 0.25— which is a reduction of 75%. So multiply 25% times that 24 sins, and you end up with six average sins per day over the course of the next 50 years. Next slide. Still with me? Okay. Six average sins per day, second half of the life. Six average sins per day times 18,262.5 days, uh, and you get 109,575 sins in the second 50 years. Now we're going to add all those up. 109,575, and eight three hundred, and you get 547,875 total sins over the course of Pastor Gordon's life. Whew. Now, how do we do? Right, how's my math? Oh, okay, I got a few thumbs up, a few—I don't know about that. All right, um, we'll, we'll talk to—we'll talk to the math teacher after church, so. Um, all right, you say, "I'm Gordon. I'm mean, great math problem." There, I'm, I'm sure that Miss Mary Francis would be very proud. But what difference does any of this make to my life? Right? Um, let's talk about that. Peter, in explaining the significance of the cross, says this: First Peter chapter two and verse twenty-four. Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body. Get that literally? Jesus bore our sins in His physical body on the tree. And then he says, by his wounds you have been healed. The perspective of Peter, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the head of the church, says that the Lord Jesus bore Pastor Gordon's sins while he hung there on the cross. This is what Paul is referring to in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 when he writes, This, our sin, he set aside, nailing it to the cross take a look at our picture again. I got a close-up for you of that um, painting. I think you saw a painting a little bit ago. It's painting by Rembrandt of the Crucifixion. It's a close-up of Jesus there hanging on the cross. And you can see that uh, the, the little uh, sign above his head of, of what Pilate had put there. Um, stating the reason why Jesus was there. Well, let's just kind of bring this home, right? This is why Jesus was there. 547,000 875 of my sins. That's why he was on the cross. Pilate may not have known the reason why Jesus was on the cross. He said, This guy's innocent. I, I don't I find no fault here. But God the Father knew the reason, and Jesus, God the Son, knew the reason as well. It's as Paul says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He writes, For our sake, God the Father made God the Son to be or to become sin who knew no sin. Jesus became my sin. Why? So that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus took on our sins in his physical body. He became our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, let's extrapolate this out a little bit further to your life and mine. Let's say that I'm an average person, right? I I commit sins on on an average basis. And if you take my 547,875 sins and you multiply those by the number of people that are here this morning, let's say there's 175 of us. We multiply that out. That would be 95 million, just our church, 875,125 sins that were laid on Jesus on the cross because of us. Extrapolate that out a little bit further. If you take the 547,875 average sins and multiply that by the population of Oconee County, right around 40,000, you get 21,915,000,000 sins that Jesus bore on the cross just for the people who are living today. In our county Let's go one step further Consider the population of the world Just in the present 7.8 billion people The math comes out to roughly 39 septillion sins That's the number 39 With 24 Zeros behind it That Jesus Bore in his body While hanging On the cross Say Gordon that's really impressive And when I step back from those numbers, I mean, it does kind of give you a sense of respect for what Jesus did. But besides the enormity of what Jesus experienced, I still don't quite understand what difference this makes to me. Well, first of all, if there's any doubt as to whether or not God loves you, as to whether or not God is crazy about you, friends, seeing those numbers— and recognizing what Jesus was willing to endure on our behalf. That should settle any doubt we may have. To endure all that he did, to have the sins of the world and their great quantity heaped upon his soldiers, friends, that speaks of a great love of which there is none greater. Jesus said it like this, John 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. The apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, stands... uh, talking about what Jesus was willing to do. Um, He says, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is when I was still in my rebellion, Christ went to the cross for me. Before I had ever made the first step toward him, before I had ever said yes to God, yes, Lord, I want you to have my life. Okay, now I'll go die for you. See, friends, that's not the order. Jesus went to the cross before I had ever turned my heart toward him while I was still a sinner. Christ died for us. Second difference that this makes, the first is that God loves us unconditionally. The second difference is to notice that Jesus forgave all of our sins. Jesus didn't pick some of the sins out of the 547,875 that I committed and said, I'll take care of these, but some of this other stuff, I don't have anything to do with it. Gordon, you're gonna have to sort that out. On your own. He was not selective in what sins of yours and mine he would receive. He simply took them all. Paul writes Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 that Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And friends, Paul had some big stuff to hand over to Jesus. I mean, he had stood there while Stephen was martyred to death, separated husbands and wives through men in jail, through women in jail, made orphans out of their children over and over again, for years. He was a notoriously evil man. And yet he says that Jesus has forgiven us all of our sins, right down to the even little white lies. Third difference this makes to your life and mine is that whatever debt we owed God, whatever price we needed to pay for our sins, Jesus, through his death on the cross, canceled that debt Paul mentions this in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, to illustrate this, I got one more math problem for us. Can you all hang in there with me for one more math pro- I'm on a math problem thing today, so I'm going to do the math problem. I figured, pun intended, that I might sum it up this way and tell you what difference all this makes, and hopefully we'll add some value to it. How- anyway, that, that, I thought that was sort of going to be funny, but it went where I thought it would go. So, anyhow... Um, here's our illustration: the zero factor. How many sins did Jesus bring to the cross? Five thousand. No, oh. he brought zero to the cross, and that's what Pilate said: "I find no fault in this guy." Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, making him the only suitable sacrifice for your sins and mine. And so, what happens to any number, any number, when we multiply it by zero? Right? It's zero. Our sin, Jesus canceled out our sin debt. It doesn't matter how bad or how many or what quantity or where we've come from or where we, what, how we were living how rebellious we got before we got to God. When we, met, when we meet up with the Lord Jesus who brought zero sins to the cross, he cancels out our sin debt before God. That's what Jesus has done. And that's what Paul is pointing out there in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, when he writes, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Last point, and I'll be very brief. If you're here today and you have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, friends, I want you to get your head wrapped around what Jesus has done for you. The price for your sins has already been paid. You need bring nothing more to the table. You don't need to bring your good works. You don't need to bring your money to a church offering plate. You don't need to bring anything. All you need to do is turn to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible says he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sins. Something for you to think about. I want to close out this morning with a prayer. Then we'll turn to our time of communion. And during our time of communion, let's just spend some time meditating. On what the Lord Jesus has accomplished, what he has done for you and for me. Our hearts should be full of gratitude like Paul's was. Especially when Paul, looking back over the course of his life, recognizes the enormity of what he put on Jesus on the cross. Friends, Jesus has done the same thing for each and every one of us. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you today for speaking to us from your word. We thank you for just a fresh glimpse of what it is that you accomplished and your willingness to accomplish this on our behalf. God, as we turn to a time of communion now, and we're reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood that made this canceling of debt possible, may our hearts be filled with gratitude. Lord, if there be any here today who have not entered into that relationship with you, Lord, may they do so in this time of quiet. Lord, we just thank you again for the opportunity to bow our head, to close our eyes, and to hear from you. Speak to us, we pray, in these few moments. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.